Welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast. Conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it. He was a spy. My name's Jane Craigie and I'm sitting here with my dad, Ian Craigie. And we've been chatting over many cups of teas and coffee over the years about his career in intelligence and it's just intrigued me perpetually and it's given me as his as his eldest child amazing opportunities over my lifetime we've been to places that most children don't get to see Uh, one of our um, holidays for example was up the Khyber Pass to Kabul um, not long before the Russian the Russian invasion. So that's that's kind of paints a picture really of, of the life that we've had um, and being, and I've dined out many times as being daughter, a daughter of a spy. Um, so dad, can you tell me a little bit about your formative years, where you were born and where you were brought up? Uh, I was born in uh, southern Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, of course, 1938. And uh, we left there at the beginning of the Second World War, came back to Scotland, father, mother, uh, two siblings and myself. And we had to find accommodation and we settled in Marishar, a little village called Achat. We later moved to um, Kingston. So, uh, and we, from there we moved, I started moving around, but uh, that was basically our early years, and that was immediate post-war, of course. My father was in the Air Force during the war in Palestine, so it was an odd mix of of, uh, of things, of political things happening, of wars and the aftermath of war. So that's where we were at that point in time. So fascinating time, and having a father that's that was involved in the military and the Air Force, it probably... Um, piqued your in interest in, in everything militarily and I know that your uncle was also um, in the army uh, so you, you had family connections to, um, to, you know, to, to the military world and to intelligence um, and I'm, I'm interested in what happened next so if we fast forward your career you ended up getting into the world of intelligence and it's fascinated you ever since I know that um, and you joined the Air Force Intelligence Corps as a volunteer in the early 60s. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that time? Yes, I, I joined up for um, three years. I volunteered. I'd, uh, before that, I'd done two years at Aberdeen University, but uh, didn't like it. That was physics. I, I studied there. So uh, in um, 1958, I decided to join up. Of course, it was um, obligatory then, and at that time, that everyone under a certain age had to do national service. So um, when that um, when that happened, I I had no idea what life would be in the air force. So we had to undergo training and so on. I was, as Jane has said, I always had a, an interest in in other countries and surveillance and uh, strategic. Uh, situations and so that was very much in in line with uh, what the Air Force were looking for at that time. And your first posting was to Bowmanor Hall 
near Loughborough, which I see now is a wedding venue, um, and you can do tours of it, which might be interesting to go back and do. Um, but yeah, you were posted to Bow Manor Hall, and, and the site was fascinating. Um, it was used during the Second World War for military intelligence, um, and it was one of the most important strategic Y stations, as they were called, and it was one of the stations that fed into Bletchley Park. What you learnt there was just fascinating, um, and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about what you learnt. Yes, uh, that was a really interesting uh, time for me, and it was an eye-opener too, because Bomana was a very much uh, an archetypal um, army station with a brigadier who was in charge of it, even though it was, was a, a civilian mainly. Uh, De Vivier was his name. He was very austere and very well dressed and had a waxed moustache. Anyway, <laughs> we we, um, we started there and we had to learn various skills like 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 typing and and uh, finding targets, which was always with uh, the Russians in particular not that easy. So, but once we had established and identified those targets that we were interested in. Then we used to follow them with uh, fairly antiquated equipment as we now look back and think, wow, how did you manage it? But it was uh, HRO receivers for those of you who are, who are um, you know, are of that era. But they were valve um, operated and of course being valve operated, frequencies used to, used to, depending on the temperature, used to vary quite a bit. So we had to try and follow as best we could. These uh, these signals, copy it, type type uh, typing mainly, but sometimes written, and then as Jane had said earlier, the um, product would go to Bletchley Park and other other um, areas. Foreign Office were obviously very interested post-war about what was happening in Europe and with Russia and with America. So yeah, so that was that was a really interesting time. Plus the fact that the the uh, German Navy and so on, although no longer active, we were still trying to keep uh, keep an eye on what was happening in Europe. So a lot of our targets were were Russian, but the vestiges of uh, of the war years too with Germany, we were hugely interested in what they they might be doing. And um, you, I think, when you when you look back to the 1960s, I mean. Not only was it the end of the the Second World War, sort of two decades after the Second World War, um, or a decade and a half after the Second World War, it was also um, post-Stalin era. So you know that's that's um, a mighty context with with which you were within which you were operating. Um, could t tell me a little bit, Dad, about that era and and why there was such an interest for the British government, British intelligence, to to scrutinise what was going on in Russia. Yeah, that was that was extremely interesting. The early sixties uh, and and uh, you know not just a couple of decades after the uh, Second World War had had finished, uh, it was very much a question of what people, what European countries were doing, what Russia was doing, what America was doing. And I was really interested in what you were telling me um, before we started, which was just how you, you as um, intelligence staff, and you were fairly junior at that time, the kind of things that you were doing to, um, to keep close surveillance on Russia. Um, so how on earth, with that rudimentary technology, did you find 
the information that you needed, transmission about the movement of a person, for example, you know, a member of the Russian intelligence, for example, or military. How, how on earth do you use that, that basic technology, HRO receiver, shortwave radio, to find somebody? Yeah, that, that's an interesting era, early 60s. And so, and I mean, during the, the uh, Second World War, we became expert uh, in HF, that's high frequency transmissions, because the um, German fleet uh, threatening threatening uh, the UK, and Scarborough had uh, had one of the direction finding stations there, which is actually still there to this day, uh, and they were trying to pinpoint the um, German fleet, submarines and uh, and surface. And that, that worked well. I mean, the work they did then was absolutely incredible. But it's it's amazing to think that between that era, that's the Second World War, through into the early 60s, and the change from from types of transmission and the quality of transmit of transmitters and so on, uh, and that became I can I can recall in the 1960s, in another country in Cyprus in fact we had targets Russian targets by this time Russia and uh, America had fallen out of love with each other and they both had their own um, issues and targets and I can remember sitting listening to Russian uh, forces um, testing missiles and they were testing missiles in a part of uh, Russia very remote uh, semi Palatinsk was one of the one of the uh, the cities that we we were interested in. Where is that? What they were doing that was in deepest Siberia. Mm-hmm. So they had set up um, a test range for missiles, and it's you, you know when you think from the Second World War through to the sixties, and and fantastic um, deprivation in Russia, starvation. 20 million people killed, all of that. And Stalin was a beast, he was a brute. But he, he had done enough with, um, with the various things he had brought in for them to be testing missiles between semi-palatinsk and a target, which I, escapes me, I can't remember. We used to sit, listen to these, um, these supporting um, transmissions that they had to guide the missiles and to check out whether they had been successful in terms of accuracy and in terms of distance. So we would sit there in a, uh, in a small uh, uh, cabin and listen to these things and we could actually see the progress of some of these missiles. And I, I found that uh, so interesting. And then we got, as we got more used to the technology that the Russians were using, we could forecast when they were testing those missiles and um, we could also find out what the Russians themselves thought of the the, uh, quality of the missiles that they were testing. So as I say that happened in a very short space of time and of course that was relevant to the situation in in, um, America. You recognise the importance of connections. And, and you were explaining to me about the Russians' interest in Cuba. 
there was one thing that you said which um, made me piqued my interest, which is they're both communist states. Yes, exactly, and that that was at the time that America was building up its uh, strategic cover. Uh, they had this problem of a communist uh, uh, government in Cuba. Fidel Castro was was the leader. And of course, the, the Russians picked this up very quickly and started uh, cooperating with the communist regime in, in Cuba. And over, over a, a period of time, uh, in secrecy, they had built two or three um, launching pads in Cuba. Cuba was about 600 miles probably from uh, America and in fact they could, I think, the, the um, missiles they had at that time, which is the ones I'm talking about, they were testing in uh, Russia, were capable of hitting targets all over the United States. And they were late in coming in because they hadn't, they hadn't there was no satellite uh, technology then, at least it was vestigial, it had only started uh, being used for surveillance, uh, so they they were not aware that the Russians had uh, had planned so well that. And you mean by they, you mean the the Americans hadn't recognised the Americans had not rec- had not recognised the the uh, threat. Now, uh, Roosevelt and Truman were the the two presidents before, but uh, JFK uh, was it was his. He had just come into office when he was faced with this uh, alarming problem of of Russian uh, ships and submarines uh, coming towards Cuba loaded with um, missiles of various types. And that was when Khrushchev, who was president at the time of Russia, had had uh, the confrontation with, uh, with uh, Kennedy. And Kennedy very quickly decided it was do or die so uh, they retaliated as best they could and they they um, produced a show of force that was sufficient to um, deter the Russian fleet that was coming across to Cuba and they weren't that far away from Cuba when uh, when it all happened then it ground to a halt because of the threats that uh, that America had uh, had made towards Russia, saying we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that, unless you stop uh, your, um, your ships dances. and submarines coming. Mm. So, so that that happened very quickly. Um, Kennedy and Khrushchev, who were, as a matter of interest, they were negotiating the situation themselves. They didn't use uh, any any civil servants or such like. They were themselves. Uh, talking on the telephone and so on with a with a, an interpreter. So anyway, the outcome was that um, uh, Khrushchev backed off, but the agreement was that if they backed off and, and dismantled the launch sites on Cuba, that um, America had to promise that they would not try to uh, subvert the court of the course of uh, history by going into Cuba and setting up a, a different government. So they agreed that and, and uh, I mean I can remember listening to the broadcast it was that it was that imminent and we, when we were we were working over that period and it was absolutely electric because it was so close to 
to a conflict breaking out with with uh, missiles and so on and so forth. But that was averted and uh, brought brought us into the era of of uh, setting up things in Europe, of developing NATO and so on. And you were saying that you know your your intelligence you fed into the U.S. as well. Your so the the British intelligence hadn't picked up this movement of this massive Russian fleet across the water to uh, Cuba. Um, when did the British intelligence? When did you pick up this movement of military force? Well, that that was picked up uh, quite early on, but of course it was always the case that in stations like Scarborough, who had their their specialism was uh, Soviet shipping and and submarine movements and so on, they um, they suspected something was happening. But the connection between that and the missile sites, because no one knew that the missile sites were in uh, Cuba. It took some time for the intelligence to match the actuality of uh, missile sites, and of course, as soon as that happened, well, uh, it exploded. Uh, and so it was a combination of things. Maybe in the early days with America, although the um, uh, the work and so on is very is very very close now in terms of America and uh, the UK. Of course, Australia too is part of that. Canada is part of that. But they're very close and and share a lot of the intelligence that that uh, comes through. So that that uh, hastened the the um, communion that that existed between America and the and the UK and set up all sorts of things that in the 60s, late 60s, 70s, 80s meant that we were working in complete uh, harmony with with. Uh, with the Americans and, and talking together about how we thought things should go, especially with the satellite uh, era. Technology. Yeah, and that's something we'll pick up in future podcasts, how the how the technology has changed since the 1960s and how that's improved intelligence um, and, and your ability to, to not only listen, but also see, you know, satellites give you the ability to see things as well as to listen to things. Um, so we'll pick that up in a future podcast. Um, and just going back to Russia, I mean, that, that whole, so up until 1989 when Thatcher and Gorbachev agreed um, what is now co- described as the fall of the, falling of the Iron Curtain, Iron Curtain. Um, that, was, that was 20, nearly 30 years of your career when you were, you were listening to Russia uh, amongst other targets. Yeah, that was an incredible time, the Cold War, as it became uh, as it became, in fact, one of the American presidents, I think, and Churchill uh, called it that. It, it, you know, it was a fair description of uh, what was happening because there was very, very little um, diplomacy between, between Russia and the rest of the, the world. But uh, and over that time, the uh, Russian, the Russians were trying to hold back some of the territory that they'd lost in the Second World War, like like Eastern Ukraine, like Moldova, like Crimea, like Bulgaria, and so on. There were huge chunks of land that they had, I suppose, annexed, you could say, uh, and until that time. So they started trying uh, to patch it, patch that up. And in fact, they continue doing that to this day with Crimea and. Uh, 
and East Ukraine, although they're not having much success with that. So, so very much the politics of uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War have dictated and are still dictating another another type of Cold War. It's not nearly so um, serious as it was in days, but it's still very, very much part of the of the world scene. Um, and and that though, those early years of your um, career, Dad, in intelligence, um, they they obviously sparked. Um, a desire in you to to continue. Um, we'll talk about future future um, postings. Um, but what is it about this um, uh, this the, those early years of your career that inspired you to pursue it as as a, a lifelong career? I think I think partly uh, the fact that sitting in a in a hut or a or, or a building, listening to what enemies are doing what they're saying to each other having the ability to uh, decipher the information uh, as as he did in Bletchley so successfully in the in the Second World War is just fascinating and to see a burgeoning uh, effort between the intelligence gathering agencies at decrypting uh, it happened so quickly uh, moving into the the um, satellite era. It happened so so quickly that it was exciting to see um, on a almost a day-to-day basis with um, lots of uh, information coming in deciphered as our ability to apply our um, methods to decipher it and to get uh, plain language showing messages, showing intent of various countries and I, I, I used to find that and still do uh, very interesting. Oh, you're not alone in that. I mm. know that. Well, thank you ever so much, Dad. That's been absolutely fascinating. And um, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about um, the direction finding location you touched on, with Scarborough being yes. one of them, yeah. um, and their strategic importance in your next postings, which were in Hong Kong and Labuan. For now, let's mm. go and grab a coffee. Thank and... you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.